0: Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey, folks, starting for Darkness is coming in hot in one second. Jane's ready to go, I know that, and you guys are ready to listen. But before we do, we got to talk about Evluma, the people that sponsor this show, the magicians, dot com. Hover over products, click Dark Sky Friendly, and hit up that OmniMax, Greg.
1: And why you do that is because the OmniMax can fit in just about every existing outdoor fixture that's out there. It's a retrofit uh, bulb itself and it has a Kelvin temperatures from 2K up to 5K, medium and multiple base, 20KV to 10K surge protection, has a photo control fail safe, which if your photo cell goes out, this bulb, we'll call it, learns it over time, and then it will mimic whatever that photo cell did. So it knows what it needs to do without the expense of having to go and replace the photo cell. And all of it's in a compact size, so it's gonna fit in your existing fixture.
0: Go to evluma.com, hover over Dark products, hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting. God, they're, so, they're doing it so right. Check them out, evlumen.com. Now, here comes Starving for Darkness.
2: Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. We are so excited to have Samyukta Kumar on the show today. Thank you so much for coming, Sam. Sam is an advocate with, with the International Dark Sky Association and a member of the International Committee and works in Slovenia designing experience to help people connect with darkness and the night sky. Sam, we start every show with the same request, which is to please tell us about a dark sky experience that moved you to a place of awe. And I'm particularly interested in your in your answer because you work so much with the dark sky. So please tell us about an experience.
3: That's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard to pick just one because lately I've been spending a lot of time outside. Um, but the one that always comes to mind first is, Um, in 2018 in Kenya, I was doing outreach, um, with the company I worked for, uh, in a small town in Southwestern Kenya. And it was like a really remote village, very little light, and extremely dry. Um, and it was during a lunar eclipse. And, um, so at this moment of totality of the lunar eclipse, um, Mm. the moon, it goes red. Um, so there's this red moon up in the sky and a line of planets. Um, I think there were maybe four planets up that day, and the band of the Milky Way. And just to see these like these crossing lines of like the plane of the Milky Way and the plane of the solar system and the moon, it just sort of gave me a sense of the scale of of everything and like how small I was. And yeah, that one stayed with me. <laughs>
2: That sounds so beautiful. And so it's funny, because Sam, you and I have met and interacted over Instagram, which I've found to be this wonderful community of dark sky lovers and people working to advocate for the nighttime experience. So it's nice to meet you, and and be able to talk to you and see how we can bridge these connections. And, and so actually, on your profile, you list you you describe yourself as building a bridge between the human, natural, and celestial. Can you talk about what this means to you, that language?
3: Um, I think um, for me, like the, my experience with the night sky has moved very much from like a personal, very abstracted view of like, I'm a human looking up at the stars to um, this sort of integrated view of like, I'm a part of this. Like. I'm, it's not me looking at nature or me interacting with nature. I am part of nature and the same way this planet that that we live on and all the life on it is part of space. And I think it's so important for us to just integrate these things and not like abstract and step away from, I don't know, to categorize things basically as, you know, the sky is separate and we're separate and nature is separate because everything's interacting. And i think it's important for us to to bridge these gaps yeah yeah
2: and i really see you as a guide that's taking people by the hand and saying hey look at this experience this and um so i think that language that you've you put and i know the instagram profile you only get like so many characters so i think you nailed it for what you what you do and Um, so you design experiences for people to enjoy and experience the night sky. Can you talk about this work?
3: Sure, sure. So, um, it takes a lot of different forms depending on who I'm doing it for. And, um, usually there's a theme around it. Um, so if it's, uh, science communication work, then it's usually about taking scientific concepts and using those to kind of inspire awe in people or just like make them think about their place and everything um for tourism it's um it's usually different uh, with tourism i try to integrate pieces of either the existing nature or the heritage of the place into an experience so if i'm designing an experience for tourists it'll usually be something that involves the perspective of the people like local to the area or maybe the wildlife any area, um, in Kenya, that's been a bit hard because there's not much research about the interaction of wildlife and light pollution, but, mm. um, that's what it would look like for tourism and then for conservation, um, pretty much the, the link between wildlife and, um, yeah, wildlife and, and light pollution or like whatever flora and fauna and ecosystems there are and how they, they engage with, with the sky and, um. Recently, I also worked on a landscape interpretation project, which kind of it's not really clear whether it's tourism or conservation. It's more of just, I think, encouraging people to explore an area through different perspectives. And that's generally, again, this interplay between heritage and culture and nature and people. I think that
2: interplay that is something that you are bringing to this work that I think is fascinating. And when I was reading about you, you taught me the term archaeoastronomy and ethnoastronomy. Is that are those the terms? Is that
3: correct? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and it was weird because I was actually reaching out to an old professor of mine this morning and explaining to him how potentially he could be a guest on the show. He he's actually how I studied Hinduism and Buddhism. And I was asking, you know, do you have any um, idea of practices that um, peoples have had with regard to the night sky throughout the, the the world? And then when I was reading your work, you you I was like, actually, here's the term and I sent it to him, which was archaeoastronomy. So you I that term was exactly what I was trying to describe, but I hadn't had it. So can you talk about archaeoastronomy and define it for our listeners who haven't heard it yet, like myself?
3: Okay. Um, archaeoastronomy is, um, it's usually, okay, I'm, I'm really bad at defining things, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Um, it's uh, when people build um, constructions, and usually these constructions are related to to the stars in some way. So, um, you, like most of your listeners, and maybe you guys will probably know Stonehenge, um, it's designed mm-hmm. in a way that um, lines up with a specific, specific celestial event, which is, I think, it's the sunset at solstice. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I think it's solstice. I think um, it's the solstice. Yeah. So any, yeah. So it's usually this, yeah, a uh, construction that interacts with a celestial event. Um, lots of temples have these. Um, a lot of the ones in Peru. I think Chichen Itza is also uh, constructed in a way that aligns with um, a a solar event. It's usually the sun um, Mm -hmm. because I guess it's the brightest object in the sky and people have deified it for for millennia. Um, But yeah, you also have ones that are used as as calendars. Um, I think Stonehenge was also one of those. Um, There's also one in Kenya that not many people know about they believe that it was used as an ancient calendar. It's a collection of stones. It's like a mini Stonehenge. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was a long definition. No, that's great. And how
2: would you define ethno astronomy?
3: Um, ethno astronomy, um, the way I understand it, is like a, a, the relationship of an ethnic group to the stars. So mm-hmm. um, in the past, different tribes and different cultures have looked up to the sky to make meaning from um and they usually come up with different ways um to interact with the sky so some tribes will time their rituals with certain celestial events um certain festivals or periods of mourning or wedding seasons or circumcisions or things like that but it's also it doesn't have to be so mystical um people also use things like the moon and the stars to time harvests and for navigation and just really practical human things. But generally different tribes have unique ways of doing this.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so you grew up in Kenya. And so what is the landscape of Kenya like and how did that inform such a deep connection that you have to nature?
3: I think um, that's a really good question. I think um, it's just the way Kenya is. I think um, it's, I'm sure you know that it's quite a big tourism industry. Uh, It's got quite a big tourism industry. Um, I think tourism is the second largest source of revenue for the country. And a lot of that tourism is nature tourism. And so generally as a country, I think a lot of us have this deep awareness and appreciation of nature, just because a lot of people rely on it for, for money and the country relies on it for a lot of money. And so I think like a lot of my peers and I were also raised with, uh, sensitivity to nature, um, sort of this appreciation for beauty. We'd, um, spend our weekends out on safari or camping or things like that. And I think when you're exposed to that at such a young age, it shapes your ideals. And I guess that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, what is light
2: pollution like in Kenya today?
3: It's growing. Is there it's a growing. Lot?
2: It's growing. Mm.
3: In the cities, okay. definitely. Um, it's not such a big problem yet because um, so far the problem is localized to the cities, um, but there is a really quickly growing solar power industry in Kenya. And so um, cheaply available light, cheaply available electricity are becoming really abundant. And I think nobody really understands how bad the consequences of that are going to be on the ecosystem because yeah, there's a lot of work already being done to protect habitats, but somehow nobody thinks of the night sky as a habitat or nighttime as a habitat.
2: It's so true. It's uh, it's so hard to educate about because there's something about somebody sent me an article this morning, just how light changes, how our brain feels. So it makes us feel safer so it's just funny that we we're kind of drawn to the light it makes us feel good so we want more and more of it and that that's you bring up solar and that's my one fear about solar because while it does reduce our carbon footprint it just makes it that much easier to pollute with light and so i think it's a good solution but we just have to be as careful or more than we have been with, you know, straight up LEDs. So it's, it is certainly a worry. Um, Yeah. So um, you, so you design experiences with people. And so can you talk about the arc of, of maybe certain people that you've worked with, where you've seen them sort of go from feeling uh, intimidated by the night sky to feeling more connected?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think um there's this kind of assumed barrier of knowledge that I've noticed people have that if they don't know what something is called or they don't know like what that shape is in the sky, then they're kind of reluctant to, to engage with it. And so some of the people that I, I guide personally are usually like hoping for, for me to guide them or for me to like I don't know point out things in the sky because I think somehow the knowledge makes you feel safer. But I Mm -hmm. think the more time you just spend, um, I include a lot of like silence and contemplation in my experiences, and the more time you spend just being quiet, um, I don't know, this connection just kind of emerges, or maybe it was always there, and once you get rid of the noise, you just notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I I think some people, I mean, sorry, Um, some people are still afraid. Um, Like, I don't think the fear is, uh i don't think you can necessarily remove it from some people um but i think it's important for people to just sit and, and kind of decide how they want to feel about this guy. and if that's fear then that's okay too
2: i think there is something inseparable uh and we've talked a lot about it on the show of fear and all kind of being right up against one another in the same yeah you know, Uh, spectrum of of emotions. Um, And I just want to say that, you know, on your Instagram, you are often debunking and demystifying this experience so that people can feel closer to it. And you said recently how people shouldn't get too tied up in remembering the constellations that they should make up their own. And I absolutely love that. I think that's really giving people agency with their connection. Mike, you wanted to jump in.
0: Like I I wanted to jump in tons of times, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, the, this idea that you said some cultures, I think all cultures relate to the night sky. I don't, I think if you look hard enough, if you're, you know, and you'll find that especially, um, you know, from Egypt to Mexico, all across the ancient world, we've built these monuments that relate to the night sky or to solstices or to these changing um, ideas that we have. And, Everyone is disconnected to that in the Western world, in the modern world today. Everybody in China and India and these places, you know, there are some people that still have a very deep connection with nature and with the sky and all that, but largely it's lost to uh, most of us who are communicating in this way. Um, So anybody that uses these kinds of devices, phones, um, Zoom chats or whatever, have been completely disconnected from um, nature and darkness. Um, How... How do you, um, what's the right way to ask this? How do you confound that? Like, how do you, it's almost like you're on this journey of conversion towards wanting to have that back and you're trying to share it with people in these various experiences. And you know, for a lot of people, it's a box check or it's a bucket list. But, you know, quite frankly, I want to throw it on the bucket list because, sorry for swearing, I think we're going to get kicked off of uh, um, Apple or something. You can beep that out after. But there's almost, we've lost something intrinsic by not having this. And I, I, I don't want it to be a tourist event. I don't want it to be something you experience once in your lifetime. I think people should have a right to have it all the time. And I want to move us towards that place. I know Jane does as well. And this idea that darkness is fear or is missing most of what darkness is, which is health restoration, silence. Um, Darkness encapsulates a lot of different things like nocturnal creatures are very quiet, you know, so we've lost something and how, um, when you're experiencing this, are you frustrated at that or are you excited that that's coming in the future?
3: a mix of both definitely um i think initially there was a lot of frustration of like why can't people just turn off the lights and like why won't like what why is it such a big deal like of course everyone everyone should recognize naturally that darkness is beautiful the same way everyone knows that nature is great um but i think um a lot of acceptance comes with understanding and i think especially in like, like I was telling Jane earlier, like in in building these bridges, I've come to sort of realize that everything that humans do is natural. Including lighting up the night and like lighting up cities like beacons and like completely eradicating the night sky. I think my personal philosophy has come to accept that as just natural but also as maybe not the best thing for our health, or maybe not the best thing for our experience. And so what I try to do is just, I feel like if I take enough people outside, or if I encourage enough people to go outside on their own and spend time in the dark, most of them, if not all of them will feel better because it's just, it's just in us. Like it's natural, it's like physiological. And, yeah, that's my hope. I try not to push or pull against people like wherever they are in their, um, yeah, in their perception of darkness, but just to try and encourage them to think about it and reflect on it and yeah.
2: I think it's so interesting, this concept that is coming, I think it's bubbling up to be more at the surface for us, which is that we're not part of nature, we are nature. Mm-hmm. And you know you're so right to say, Sam. You know even everything that we do is natural because, I mean, I am of the earth. I will go back to the earth, and you know my time as a living body is is still very natural. And so, I I've heard this concept. I've heard you say it. I've said it recently in my posts. Um, I've heard it from Peter Wollenbein who talks about the hidden life of trees um and then there it was recently in the film my octopus teacher um and he also had this same feeling of of that you know he thought he was a spectator and then he was like once he developed this relationship with this animal he realized that he was just as much a part of it and so i love that this idea is coming up in all of the people doing this work and that we're starting to spread this because I think this separation comes from an idea of arrogance Mm -hmm. that we're different or better or smarter you know the whole smarter thing really bothers me (laughs) because i'm not foraging i'm not feeding myself every day or within (laughs) one window of of a day of survival we're very pet friendly here so don't worry That's good (laughs) sorry
3: i'm done sitting in she usually suddenly barks at this time and we just
2: she agrees. She's, she agrees. We're all part of nature. And, yeah. and so this separation is just an illusion that we've taken on. And I think that debunking this and, and doing the work that you're doing, being that bridge to overcome this idea of separation, which isn't really there. And it's very compassionate of you to apply that even to how we're polluting and you know the the long-term time scale of that is that if we step outside the bounds of what nature can can do we will be subsumed and it nature will again resurge and regenerate without us so that's really the the natural aspect that you're talking about with, when it comes to some of our less sustainable behaviors so you know you have to do a lot of communication about you know, the the unsustainable uh, approaches that we're doing with light. And, and that can get really touchy with people. So what are some of the strategies that you have about talking about light pollution, educating about this thing that it's so counterintuitive, it doesn't seem that bad, but it really is. So what are some of your strategies?
3: That's another good question. Um, I think it very much depends on who I'm talking to because um, like having this conversation in Slovenia with people who already have like light pollution um, laws in place um, or like who don't have any other pressing problems. I think I can be much more straightforward and just talk about the problems and um, issues and like, like why you need to do this. But in a place like Kenya, it's a very different conversation because Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people still don't have access to, you know, proper sanitation or clean water or there's, like, very little food security. And so coming in and talking about, like, life pollution is a problem, we need to fix this, I feel like it comes across as a little insensitive. And so for that kind of audience, it would be very much to frame it in terms of opportunity, in terms of the opportunity of, like, the dark skies bring for maybe tourism or conservation or just to like talk about the benefits of it rather than like give people another problem that they have to, to solve and to worry about
2: but i think that is fascinating that you're you're turning it into an incentive with people that you would have already have so many problems and so that's so compassionate and it's and it's also brave to not give up on the issue and to continue on but just to find a way to reframe and pivot so it can be heard
3: yeah i don't know if it's, it's doing much yet but i think i'll give it some time and some more persistence i think another thing it's not just like me being sensitive and compassionate but another thing that i feel like i'm doing with like telling people to turn off the lights is I'm challenging their idea of what development looks like. Mm-hmm. It looks like lighting and it looks like tall buildings that are brightly lit all the time and a cityscape that you can see from, um, I don't know, two cities away, um, it's very much trying to reshape the direction of development as well. So to try and make people aware that there's not just economic opportunity and, and lighting stuff, or like even like a dark place could thrive and make money and lead the country into a more prosperous direction.
0: The, the existence of light pollution is the, most, is the absolute number one signal that humans are out of control or doing things they shouldn't be doing. I mean, the brightest places in the world, Las Vegas, Macau, these kinds of places are the places where people do the worst things. They blow their money on gambling. They get themselves in, <laughs> involved in negative activities. So light pollution is a symbol of maybe human excess and overdevelopment or, um, the use of wealth in, in, in ways that do not improve human, uh, outcomes. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like we have to redefine what progress is. It's not, you know, light at night. It's not that and actually human progress is the restoration and preservation of natural darkness. That's the arg- that's what the argument should should be moving towards in my mind.
3: Exactly, yeah, I agree.
2: So, I mean, I do think it's a really interesting conversation of how do we bring the right conversation to the right group of people? Because mm-hmm. I think if you're hungry, you don't want to hear about wildlife being impacted by light pollution. If I'm hungry, I don't have any interest in that. So I think it's a very valid point to say, you know, you have to change the conversation based on where you are. And I think that's, that's something that as uh, advocates for the dark sky that we all are facing, that each group of people really has a different connection to the night sky. And that's why I think your work is so fascinating because, um, Sam, you talk about bringing in the natural assets so that you develop Um, programs and tours that can bring in natural assets that complement the night sky experience. And so let's let's talk about where you are now. So you are in Slovenia doing this advocacy. And so does Slovenia have good laws around the dark sky?
3: Um, As far as I know, as far as I've been able to find out, they have one that I'm not sure if I'm gonna say this correctly, you guys probably know what this is about, but it says that they're not allowed to have any luminance above zero degrees. I think that means okay. that all the light has to be below the horizon. Yes. Which is pretty yeah. good.
0: That's a good law. That's really good.
2: The, yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. But in terms of like the types of light used, I've mostly seen just amber lighting, it's still LED, and there's still a lot of insects kind of buzzing around them. Um, there are a couple of really bright white lights that drive me crazy, but I think it's it's doing okay yeah
2: and so what are the natural assets of slovenia that complement the dark skies
3: um definitely the um it's got quite a hilly landscape um -hmm. it has some of some of the alps pass through slovenia and there's um sort of a pre-alpine region where like i'm staying so it's extremely hilly and at night it's it's just magical it's really pretty (laughs) Um, I was
2: in Slovenia in 2018, and there's amazing caves there as well, which is kind of a different darkness experience. (laughs) Um, But I love that you're incorporating the the natural landscape and what's already there uh, and then linking that up with a dark sky experience. I think that's a really great approach. Uh, What what kind of feedback have you gotten from these tours that you guide?
3: It's, it's been interesting. Uh, a lot of people are surprised by how well your eyes actually adapt to the dark. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I took a couple <laughs> um, on, on the experience. And I have these little headlamps, these little red LED lights to use on the walk back down. And we spent about an hour up on the hill in the dark. I mean, there's still city lights around, but it's not so bright. And they just didn't want to use the lights going back because they could see so much and it was close to the new moon. So I think, yeah, that was an experience, I think, um, that, that stayed with them. And then they talked about it later, about how surprised they were that they could actually see so well without lights at night. Um, so yeah, uh, that's one, another one, um, so the experience starts around twilight. So right after the sunset. And just the way our perception of color changes as the amount of light gets lower. Mm -hmm. That's something that's interesting to some people as well. Um, Like, Mm. just before it gets completely dark, when you're looking at things, really, all you're perceiving is contrast, it's all gray. And it's, um, this is something I, I always ask uh, people to think about, about like looking at, at a leaf or at the trees and asking themselves, does it look green because you know it's green? Because right now everything is just gray.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, um, that's another one I'm trying to think of more.
2: Yeah, it's also interesting.
3: Sensation. Yeah. Oh, sensation. Oh, sorry. No, sensation. go on, just, go on. Um, yeah. Um, we're used to touching with our hands. Um, but I think when you spend enough time in the dark, I've noticed this and other people have too, that your your whole body becomes more sensitive. And like the way you perceive sensation in different places, is it's different. Like holding something in your hands feels different to holding it against your face or on your neck. It's yeah, just the amount of heightening that that your senses go through. They say when you lose
2: one sense, that actually all of your other senses become heightened. And so I think that that can sort of happen on a nightly experience because we are, you know, seeing this, this dimming. And that's such a good point that there's so much projection that happens when you're looking at something and you remember it to be green but you're not really seeing it as green. Mm-hmm. And I think that is actually a very philosophical point, because it starts to make you step away from projections, and maybe unnecessary narratives that could be happening in your mind. And so, as you start to distance yourself from from your constructs, which may be unchecked, maybe they need to be checked, um, the night sky can bring that perspective back, so that's a very fascinating point. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you provide consultation for darks. Well, I'll jump into that later. Let's talk about the term that you've coined, star bathing. Um, what what <laughs> is star bathing to you?
3: Um, okay, so this term is heavily inspired by forest bathing, which you've probably heard of. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. movement. I think it started in the '80s in Japan of people going to the forest for for healing and for wellness, and there are these like demonstrable benefits of being around trees and just being in nature and connecting with nature. And I wanted to do the same thing with with the night sky, and star bathing is really just the most romantic sounding term that I can think of. Um, beautiful. Yeah, it's it is like, beautiful.
0: Hmm. Can I ask a question here, Jane? So the Perseids the yeah. per meteor shower just um, occurred, and I wasn't able to go up north and see, but my wife and one of my daughters went and built a fire and laid down beside the fire, and at 3 o'clock in the morning they were looking up, and they saw the meteor, about 5 to 10 a minute, which is, which is a lot, actually. And it's interesting because my daughter said, you know, Oh, Dad! I thought it was going to be way more. I thought you were gonna, you was going to be like showering meteorites and all that sort of stuff. And there's, you know, there's there's a um, a sense that some of this stuff like people um, are looking for too much excitement or something, and they need to withdraw back to the stillness. And I love the idea of the bathing because when you're in a bath, you're staying you're just, you're still, right? and you're maybe you're relaxing you've you know you're you're laying back or whatever and you're allowing the water to be around you and you're just chilling out for a little bit or whatever it is and there's a sense of that too that when you're looking up at these stars that although you know we always, my daughter says i was expecting this crazy shower of meteors, she won't forget the experience like it it, it will stand out more than that crazy movie that stimulated her eyes and we, it was all smashing and blowing up of things or whatever it is, that we, or the video games or whatever. Nobody remembers playing video games. You ask somebody, do you remember that time we played video games 10 years ago? No, I don't remember any of that. You know, but do you remember that time that we laid down and you lit a fire and we saw the, the proceeds meteor shower and every minute there was like, you could make five to 10 wishes on stars. Yeah. The she'll remember that. And so that stillness is very memorable for us. That, that star bathing. So I absolutely love that term. How do your customers relate to that? Or do they, do they leave understanding what star bathing is?
3: Yeah, I think much more than when they enter into the experience. Um, I think just because of maybe how astrotourism is everywhere, or the amazing pictures that we get to see because of astrophotographers, there's this idea that it's about space and like space is very nerdy, and you have to know what things are called, and like someone is going to show me this star or this constellation. But I think by the time you spend enough time just in stillness you don't need any of that. Um, It's just that that kind of primal feeling. And I think the peace that you gain from that, I think it stays with them, because I always notice that the walks back, it's about the same route that we take up the hill and and down the hill. And the walks back are always slower and and more deliberate, and we'll stop to look at fireflies or bats or or moths. Like, I think, I think Yeah. I don't know if I could explain what star bathing is in words or like the peace that you're supposed to feel. You're bathing in the awe of the
0: universe. That's what it is. You know, I I think of it, you know, in some ways it's, it's interesting to think of the earth is like a womb that you're in and you, there's this whole universe out there that is part of you and and what what you are and, and observing it is so essential. And I don't know, you know, we're, um, in some ways I'm frustrated by the amount of time it's going to take us to turn this whole thing around, you know. But I think this astro tourism is like an introduction to humans that you live here in the universe. You need to see the universe. And it has nothing to do with being able to identify the constellations. If you can't identify the constellations, make up your own. It doesn't matter. That's what all of our human ancestors have done for um, all time, actually you know, before there was even humans. Um, so I'm, I think your work is very, very important. I just, I, I don't know how to, um, what we're trying to figure out, and Jane the, is, is trying to figure out is how do we take that and make that policy? Or how do we take that, Jane, and turn it into action so that the, this 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 creeping light that's spreading across the planet starts to go back? to where it came from in a way. It's almost like Mordor, the darkness is coming out of Mordor. It's actually the light that is the that is the sign of of the bad. You know, it's like it, it inverts all of our metaphors in some way, but I, I really hope we can, and your work is what is really gonna help star bathing, that kind of terminology describing it correctly, is what's gonna help us re- pull back all this artificial light that is clouding our minds and, and, and clouding our perspective of who we are.
2: No,
3: I, I often I you know, don't know.
2: Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Well, I, uh, you know, you, you're describing Sam, you know, that the way back, you almost have a different group of people mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I often say mm-hmm. that being under the night sky, even for five or 10 minutes, you'll feel the cadence of your waterfall of, of thought shift and it's very unnameable. It's hard to describe, you know, your inner landscape. But I think what you're describing there is, is that everyone's internal experience, which I've recently heard, it's something like 99% of your experience in the world is internal. And so (laughs) I think that's really interesting that you're kind of experiencing that internal shift when the group of people going there on the way back they're suddenly ready to stop and observe and almost be a more of a part of that experience. So I I think you know for for all of our parts the three of us here and everyone listening doing this type of work my the it's really hard it's really frustrating but at the same time my great hope is that I never hear anyone listen to what we're saying and and take it in and reject it. It's not, it's, it's something that once you really take Hmm. it into your heart, which doesn't take that long, uh, you, you make believers. In fact, I have people in the lighting industry suddenly being like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And they, they, and I've had long talks recently on the phone with several key lighting people saying, wow, we're doing this wrong. And so there's an aha wake up moment that. I think you are really bringing people through that moment in the direct experience of it, which is not something that I do. I don't take people out and hold them by the hand the way that you are. So I think that's so valuable because you're making true believers, because they're really feeling that experience. Mm, yep. And I relate to you so much, Sam, because I grew up in a very rural area, had a lot of dark sky experience. In fact, my, the window of my room, was a, a a glass door where I could see up and out into the sky every night. So I, I think that that really plays into the deep connection that I feel to the natural environment. And I want to go back to just do you have stories? So you said you were you would camp out on safari at, at night in, in your growing up.
3: Yeah. Um... It was often actually at at lodges. I don't remember camping that much, probably because it was very stressful and I was small, Um, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different landscape. These lodges are kind of built. um, It's basically like camping. It's like a tent built into the ground. Uh, You have to turn off your lights by a certain time. That's the great thing about going, going out to the wilderness. Um, And I don't know, it's, um, it's just, it's so different like to being in the city. Because, um, I mean, of course, you would think of Kenya as, as quite nature heavy, but actually the, the city is quite, it's very urban. So there's not like many trees or, or much access to nature and they're slowly building out into the national parks. So that's happening by by accident. Um, mm. But when you actually go out into a game reserve or into some of this like undeveloped land, it's beautiful. Like the sounds of the crickets are so loud and... You can hear like grunts from hippos at night, and I don't know. It's 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 a different kind of. It's not just the sky. It's like the sky and and this kind of sensual landscape that's interacting with you. All these smells and the breeze and these sounds and it's it's yeah. It leaves an impression. <laughs> it left an impression on me.
2: And I think it's not just the sky, but it's like the sky is the thing that's interconnecting between you and that hippo and the crickets, because it's such a shared experience and so unifying as a living thing. It's beautiful. And I just, I I will probably have to go to Kenya one day and um, maybe I'll call you and you can give me advice of where to go and where to stay, because it sounds absolutely beautiful. And so, um, Now you provide consultation for dark sky preservation projects. Um, Do you have any projects you'd like to share with us, your experiences, the challenges and solutions that you found?
3: Uh, Sure. Uh, So most recently I was working on one in Slovenia. Um, It's a landscape interpretation project that is supposed to basically give people an experience through Slovenia, but from a different perspective. And so what I, had to do there was try and basically connect the sky to different parts of, of Slovenia, which is um, it's, it's not that easy because I'm not from here. Um, but also because really nature and culture are the only things that come to mind. Um, So sorry, I'm going to take a moment to think. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's,
2: um, it's interesting because I do think that, you know, we have, I, I once heard a quote that it's a curse to love two countries. Um, and so, because you, you love your country, maybe the one that you grew up in, or maybe one that you fell in love with, and then you fall in love with another. And then, you know, it's like, there's only so much time in the day. And so, you know, you you grew up in Kenya, you have this deep connection to that landscape. it's It's what informed Your very deep connection to nature and now here you are in a in a new culture trying to share that and bridge across cultures i think you know it's a fascinating uh lens into understanding how different connections to the night sky can be so as challenging as it is it's also extremely valuable what you're doing to try and do this in a new land with a new group of people
3: Yeah, it's, I mean, actually like the, I mean, the kind of issues or the kind of natural assets that I would integrate into the project in Kenya, I had to completely reverse that uh, because, um, like I said, I'm trying to also kind of bridge this gap between man and nature and just that Mm -hmm. nature is a very responsive thing that finds equilibrium. And so one of the things was to install a pair of binoculars at um, a site next to a man-made lake. And so these binoculars would be used at night to look at at deep sky stuff but then also um look at them um, to look during the day at the bird life that had suddenly migrated to this new artificial lake um, because the lake was built like there was no existing bird life before and now there's a whole ecosystem Um, this is something no in slovenia oh
2: Slovenia. okay wow so
3: yeah. yeah. So, so um, also to integrate like birds using the sky for migration and just to have these birds here as a representation of how nature kind of re rebalances itself to, for every change that we make.
0: Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. So like the- this, this idea of a man made lake, okay. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just like the, isn't that part that perception, isn't that part of us being separate again? Like we are part of the earth. So we made a lake, you know, it's, it's still a lake. It's still there, you know, and then all of a sudden the nature starts to use it. It's, it's fascinating to me. But then we look at all, you know, if we could just include ourselves in all this deeply, spiritually and mentally include ourselves into this planet, so many things would be obvious, you know, that, you you know, you you don't want to pollute the water. You know like things like that would be very obvious, and it's like this separate oh that's you know and I'm not criticizing you, but that's a man made lake that's a natural lake. well they're both lakes, and in fact it, the earth will be the final decider of what happens, not us, you know eventually it will like um uh Jane introduced the word rewilding onto the show, and I thought that was an interesting this will all be rewilded at some point, you know we're not going to perpetuate ourselves forever, so how, when you're doing that, you're, and I encourage many people, binoculars, binoculars are very good for stargazing. In fact, people try to use complicated devices and telescopes and all that. And really, a, a good set of binoculars, you can see so much in the night sky with a good Just lying on your back on a dock or on the grass in a park and looking up in binoculars is such a, a wonderful way to... to um, to uh, To view dark sky stuff. So yeah, this idea, of, but the separateness, I think we have to look at ourselves as being integrated, Sam. And um, yeah. I, I think your work is, 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 is leading towards that as a, a presupposition almost, you know, if that makes yeah. sense, like a place to start from, not a place to get to, but we're starting from the idea that this is, we're all part of the same thing and we need it. And offending it is silly. And, and Destructive, actually. I wish we could. Yeah. I, I wish. I just want to push the accelerator down on this movement so bad, Jane. I just, <laughs> just kind of like, you know, I and I. But I, it's hard to know what to do in the lighting industry. And like you said, it's we're in the phase, Jane, where we're trying to make people realize this almost.
2: Yeah. Well, it's happening though because I think, I think in the next year, we're gonna start to see even more traction because I i find that the more and and sam you probably feel this too but the more that you work in the field of darkness the more you become a lightning rod for it and people are probably sending you articles because you were the the seed that that planted it in them so then you become the 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 thing oh hey did you see this and then you you get it three times because somebody sent it to you as well yeah and so i think that that's such a great sign of of the amplification of this topic that's happening. And I, I just want to go back a second. So you said your approach was different um, with the lake that, oh, I won't call it a man-made lake, Mike, with the, with the lake that was a natural choice of a human. Um, <laughs> so oh. uh, that you have these different approaches. So what would have been a different approach somewhere else?
3: Um, um, I think to take an, an actually not a man-made natural lake i'm sorry michael um not a (laughs) man-made natural lake and and try to like showcase that relationship um between maybe birds that are already around this artificial no uh, outside like sorry birds that are already living around this natural lake um and try and highlight their relationship with the sky i just felt like this particular thing of like me first of all not knowing what lake i could put this on or what People would frequent, but also try to include the human in this interaction between nature and the sky. That it's not just birds on a lake, it's birds on a lake as a result of something people have done. And mm-hmm. yeah, that maybe also not everything we do is necessarily bad, or not like building man-made lakes or artificial lakes is not necessarily bad. It's just it's the balance will shift anyway.
2: Yes. Yes. So um I think it's so important to reframe this art the way that we talk about it and I'll point out you know y- you you kind of discussed earlier about how incentivizing darkness in this, particularly in Kenya was a better route and what I've also found even in speaking to Americans here that incentivizing darkness is a better route because we're always up against this idea that more light is safer which is not really true it's not always true it's sometimes true and that leads to its its uh its strategy being used all the time and so i i feel like it's an easier conversation to say hey look what you're missing look which look what you could do with this opportunity so the the whole Ripping this security blanket out of people's hands doesn't really work very well, because people will pull tighter, they'll hold on tighter. So I, I think it's interesting, though, that the incentive route is, is actually more successful, it seems, across many cultures. So what's what's on the horizon for your work? What, what are some things that you're excited about in terms of this darkness movement that we're all endeavoring upon?
3: Um, what I'm excited about is hopefully like just the greater cultural and and global sensitivity, not necessarily just the darkness. I think just in general, more sensitivity is a good thing, but also like with regards to light. Um, but yeah, I think I'm just curious to see where it goes because it seems like it's gaining so much momentum. Yeah, I
0: agree. You know, I I think it's interesting about what you said there, Jane, just previously, Um, you know, a lot of humans think that we're acting on reason or that we're deciding what we're going to do for some reasons. Like we need to put this electric light here. And the reason why is because more light brings safety. We're not acting on reason. We're acting on axiomatic presuppositions, many of which are wrong you know and and, and we, the, like they're totally completely wrong we we don't act on reason we act on axioms and then we build laws around these axioms that enforce the axioms and perpetuate them into the future and what we don't do is say you know hey I put a light there. What's going to happen to that light when, I, when it dies in 25 years or 10 years? How is that light going to impact everything else around it? We don't think in terms of that. And, I, and if we're going to be an intelligent species, which I don't think we are yet, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that with all boldness. I don't think humans are, are fully conscious. I think we can become more conscious. I think we can become more intelligent. But I don't think we're an intelligent species. I think we're a species that has a lot of technology and acts on axioms. You know, like, oh, um, I could list a whole manner of them. And one of them is, one of the main ones we're focusing on is that more light doesn't equal more safety. And that's the wrong axiom. It should be more light often causes damage and harm and all manner of problems for us. And so let's stop acting on axioms. Let's look at our presuppositions and say, are we are we acting from the right place here? Are we really just foolish Naked apes running around with crazy technology that can we can do whatever do whatever we want. Like one of the fellows we interviewed was was talking about India and all the light pollution in India. They used to have little incandescent bulbs and they've replaced them with these massively bright LED lights and everybody's happy now, right? Because it's brighter. I'm not so sure. (laughs) You know, Um, well I know for sure it's bad, but. You know how do we in your work in a way you're sort of you're not attacking I don't want to use the word attack but you're 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 poking holes in those axioms you're saying you know hey this silence the starry sky this star bathing what does it do to you how do you feel and people leave feeling better what does that tell us we have to we have to move towards that and that is moving towards consciousness a fuller consciousness a more completed a complete consciousness. And so, yes, I absolutely love what you're doing <laughs> there. I don't even know if I have a question in there, but there. I,
2: think, I have a question. Okay. And this is how, yo, go on. What's your comment first, Sam?
3: Sure. Um, I think, Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with what you said, Michael, up to a point, but I think there's also this anthropocentrism like there that, that also Jane was talking about, like, it's also my pet peeve of like, we feel like, it should feel good to us. And that's the only reason it can be there. I think I want to give people the freedom to go outside and completely hate the dark and be like, you know, I hate it, I only want to be in light, but still recognize that darkness needs to be respected, because it has its place in everything. It has its place in the ecosystem. And we're not the only ones who need to feel a certain way about it. It almost doesn't matter how we feel. Mm -hmm. It's it's just necessary. Mm-hmm. so i have I try to be careful in how I frame things to not like to romanticize it a little bit, but also to not over romanticize it or make it overly polarized. I think it's really important to to emphasize that it's necessary, no matter what people feel about it or no matter what like we feel safer in.
2: I think that's something that's so unique to your approach, Sam, which is that you allow, you allow people to have their feelings, but then you also stay, take a step back and say feelings aren't everything. And, uh, you know, just by allowing all of humanity's actions to be natural, I think it's also another unique way that you approach this work. And so often I, I ask this at the end of all of our guests. so. Um, why does night matter?
3: Okay, that's tough. You saved the hardest one that's for the end. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, because I feel it. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I think it's something
3: that I can't put into words. It's a very primal knowing of this. This is important. This has its place. Maybe it's just, yeah, mm-hmm. a personal, like, affiliation to, to darkness or personal like your um, i just feel it like i don't have a an answer in words i love
2: i love that and it is primal and i think that's a really important point which is that it again goes back to your whole concept that we are nature so well it's been a wonderful time to have you on the show mike do you have any last words or or comments or questions for sam
0: thank you for your work because I couldn't do it Um, so thank you for what you're doing and um, yes if there's any way we can help you I know we're I know for sure Jane and I will do whatever we can to promote your business or to send people your way or to send your message out so please don't feel free to stay in touch with us and and we'll be here to help you any way we can
2: yes follow Sam on Instagram and Twitter we'll post your your handles and um we look forward to seeing more from your work and and um bringing back the dark sky for all of us thank you
3: thank you so much
0: folks i know you just fell in love with starving for darkness once again every show is such a mind blower for me and i'm so grateful for our guests and for jane slade and everything all the work she's doing and all the contributions everybody's making but before we do we got to go to the magicians. we got to thank them. Evluma.com. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting and let's do it. Greg, what do they they got down there?
1: Well, with their OmniMax product, it maintains illuminance efficiently. They said that once. I'm like, that's important because, um, or ambiance, I should say efficiently. Ambiance and lighting. They have the Kelvin temperatures covered and they make it efficient by being LED. So they've got everything you need without sacrificing the light you love. So,
0: Starving for Darkness thanks you folks. Go to StarvingForDarkness.com, but also have Luma, the magicians. That's E-V-L-U-M-A dot com. Come on, click it. Hover over products, click on dark sky friendly lighting, and get her done. Thanks for listening, folks.